Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Washington lawmakers began crawling out from under the wreckage of the failed American Health Care Act, which is better known as the bill that finally emerged from the GOP's seven-year effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. This bill largely foundered because of deep divides within the House Republican Caucus, with House Speaker Paul Ryan and establishment leaders on one side and the insurgent House Freedom Caucus on the other. But now they have a common enemy, at least, in the form of President Donald Trump, who has spent the last week lashing out at both sides, raising an obvious question, where are all these people going to go from here? Meanwhile, this week, the president unveiled his executive order on promoting energy independence and economic growth, a measure that would roll back steps taken by his predecessor to reduce carbon emissions and keep America on track to hit its climate change targets. Trump has framed this endeavor as one that would end what he calls the war on coal and which would supposedly bring back mining jobs in coal-rich Appalachia. Trump's one of the few national politicians in recent memory who's engaged with this part of this country, which is a good thing. What's not as good is making promises that you can't keep and restoring coal country to its former glory looks to be a very heavy lift, if not impossible. Finally, our guest this week is professor and author Michael Kazin, who joins us to talk about his book, War Against War, The Fight for American Peace, 1914 to 1918, which tells the largely forgotten story about a mass movement in America that tried to keep the country out of World War I and what today's activists can learn from their efforts. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney and Paige Lavender. Here's what happened first. Hi, it's us again. Your friends from the Huffington Post. It's the So That Happened podcast for the week of whatever this is. Hey. My name is Jason Hi, Lincolns. Yeah, and I'm the editor of Eat the Press of the Huffington Post. I'm joined by uh, my good pals, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And Zachary Carter. Hi, everybody. And uh, it's great to talk to you. You know, by the time you're listening to this, uh, your life will be in a lot of places but one thing it will not be it will not be Zach Carter's birthday when you listen to this podcast that's true that's true yeah it's like one thing that it definitely will not be you will not have any reason to celebrate Zachary Carter's birthday because you'll be hearing about it too late so don't but i will still be 34 years old right so Zach, that Zach, by the way is the young pope <laughs> Thank you so much for telling people that it's not Zach's birthday at the time that they're hearing this. See, that's that's my birthday present to you. That's a a, a really rigorous adherence Isn't to it, our, it, our you know, how great. we treat time on this podcast. It's great that, that we talk about Zach's birthday, but really it's Arthur who gets the present. Um, so last week <laughs> – Last last week we were talking on our podcast, uh, one of the things we talked about was how we're going to sort of step out of the maelstrom of the news. We had a lot of great interviews. We talked a lot about things that were off topic. Um, 
and at the time, of course, two gigantic things were happening uh, in the news. One was the American Health Care Act was going down to an ignominious failure, and the other was Devin Nunes was gallivanting around the White House, dropping information about FISA warrants. Um, we've now, I feel like now we've had some time to assess these things. It's probably best to talk about them now that we're not in the thick of what everyone else was I, grooving on. I would love to tell our listeners, I was at the Capitol on Friday. Yeah. When, but when, as Republicans were walking toward the House chamber to vote on their replacement bill, and they didn't know yet that it had been pulled by Paul Ryan and Donald Trump because it didn't have enough support. So I got to tell them by showing them the tweets that reported it, and they were like, well, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> that must be true, though. <laughs> this bill is not going to pass. <laughs> so that was a real privilege. Some of them were like that morning, yeah, like, check yeah, your privilege, oh, it'll, 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 it'll easily pass. Check your privilege. Uh, you know, but at the same time, at the same time, Matt Fuller, uh, one of our congressional reporters, is doing pretty detailed whip counts right up to the end. Uh, we had, knew it was going down. We knew it was going down. And it was going to go down so hard that I thought it was insane that Donald Trump wanted to stage a vote because it just would have been kind of humiliating. Like, I think I think Fuller surmised that in the end, the uh, they, they may not get they might not have gotten 200 votes for this bill. They never had they never really made a case for why they needed to take health insurance away from 24 million people. And they they never made a case that uh, they, they kept talking about how they were going to bring down prices through competition. Um, which is a nice idea, but we had about twelve thousand years of economic development prior to the implementation of Obamacare. You were there for all of it. I missed a few thousand of them. Okay, uh, but but during the course of those twelve thousand years of economic development, um, the the market and the forces of competition had been unable to come come to a system in which I, I believe uh, when Obamacare was passed, about fifty million Americans. Uh, had health insurance. 50 million did not have health insurance as a result of this. So they were talking about just taking away health insurance and going back to a system that basically sucked uh, for a lot of people. And that is a tough vote, even if you're in the Freedom Caucus. And it was pretty clear the Freedom Caucus, uh, you know, most of those members didn't like the bill for a completely different reason, right. which was that it wasn't mean enough. Of course, uh, we should dispense with the whole idea that perhaps the AHCA was a healthcare bill. Uh, the, the, to me, the uh, the repeal in place bill that Paul Ryan set in set in motion wasn't ever really intended to be a bill that was going to improve healthcare outcomes or increase competition. It was a it was a revenue baseline manipulation scheme uh, that would get rid of important taxes. Is this like something Bernie Madoff did? <laughs> well, no, but it's it was there's a four part process that Paul Ryan wants to pursue in Congress that ends with a gigantic tax cut for the rich. And the first step would be repealing the taxes in the AHCA. The second stage would be uh, a tax reform package. Uh, the third step would be and this is, I think, even the more trickier part of the whole scheme was to impose a border adjustment tax on imports. Uh, and that would allow him to manipulate the revenue baseline so that if once he gets to now passing tax cuts, he can do it in a way through the A, through the reconciliation process and B, in a way that can make them permanent, not not the situation that George W. Bush faced when he implemented his tax cuts was that there would always be a sunset date. The the bill also uh, devoted a significant number of pages to kicking Lottery winners off Medicaid. Crazy stuff. <laughs> just, uh, just strangely off topic. Yeah, it was very, very, very off topic. But 
in the aftermath of this, uh, I think the day after the bill went down, Donald Trump sent out a tweet asking everyone to watch uh, Judge Jeanine Perot show on Fox. Can't say I'm really familiar with that program. Not a huge. I'll be, I'll be honest. Not that familiar it. with her either. Uh, I've seen clips of her on other shows. She seems to be a very forward and aggressive person. Um, but her show that day was was de- dedicated essentially to Paul Ryan should go. He sh- he's terrible. He should step down as House Speaker and someone else should take their place, which I thought, okay, this is like the Steve Bannon wing of the Donald Trump White House speaking. They've always been warring with Paul Ryan. Thursday of this week, Donald Trump tweeted once again. And this time he threatened members of the Freedom Caucus – uh, saying that he would he would support I, essentially support primary opponents against them and attacked his this part of his own party along with Democrats fingering them for being the obtuse people who prevented this deal from happening. But to my mind, you have to pick a side. There's the Paul Ryan side of the Republican Party, and then there's the Freedom Caucus side of the Republican Party. Why is he beefing with both? Well, that is a little schizophrenic. And, of course, Donald Trump doesn't understand things. So he may have just been confused. However, it was the Freedom Caucus that made the Paul Ryan health care bill more conservative in the final days before they failed to vote on it last week. It was the Freedom Caucus that Paul Ryan pandered to and made changes so that more people could be kicked off health insurance more quickly. And benefits could be stingier for those who kept it. Yeah, so so Paul, Paul Ryan, uh, even though they were sort of bucking against his leadership. Well, not I, just I, bucking. He's outright attempting to sabotage it for, for a period of time. Yeah. For like three days, he was trying to sabotage Paul Ryan. Now he's trying to sabotage the Freedom Caucus. And you get this idea that, you know, this guy is kind of like the sponge and whoever talks to him last, that's what he acts on. And he probably spoke to I – can, I can just picture it in my head. I'm talking to Steve Bannon. Paul Ryan being the worst, and he tweets one thing, and then he's talking to Ryan's previous the next day, the Freedom Caucus being the worst, and he tweets another thing. Can I dump on Democrats now? Yes, please. Let's have now Zachary Carter dumping on Democrats. It's not your birthday. <laughs> Actually, it is, but we'll worry about time later. Nah. Um, so, you know, I think it's kind of amazing. This is the second time in a, in a few years where the Freedom Caucus and the Republican Party is just inability to get their act together has bailed out the Democrats for for being basically pretty bad at politics. They never really came up with a message for why the Republican health care plan was bad. They never really communicated it to the public. They just sort of ran around being like, oh, God, it's bad. Didn't uh, they say it would kick 24 million people off their health insurance? The CBO said the that. The CBO said that. And the White Democrats said that estimate too. said it would be even worse. Yeah, well. yeah, Democrats said a bunch of different things. I mean, they were their message, I, I think – I think even the day that it went down, uh, the morning of the morning before the vote, Nancy Pelosi was out there saying, "We should call this bill Make America Sick Again." I mean, it was just not it was not a great messaging effort. Uh, they they were bailed out by the Freedom Caucus by being bad at politics, uh, which is what happened back in 2011 when we had the debt ceiling standoff and President Obama was just chomping at the bit to cut Social Security. And maybe even Medicare as part of a grand bargain yeah. with Republicans. But a lot of Democrats liked that grand bargain stuff. None of them went along with the American Health Care Act. I think I was I was surprised that uh, that Pelosi was able to keep her her caucus together on this. I mean that was that was yeah. interesting because there are a lot of just kind of 
chicken shit Democrats who are like, oh, well, the Republicans are doing something. Maybe I should vote with them anyway well, for well, no reason. In the, in the aftermath of the bill's collapse, what are they doing wrong now, the Democrats? I have an idea what they're doing I think doing they're actually wrong. doing something – well, <laughs> I don't think lawmakers in the House are doing things very well. But I think uh, Bernie Sanders is being very clever in the Senate by saying, hey, look, we should do Medicare for all. And he's not, he's not calling it single payer, which is good because single payer – is a dumb word used by wonks. Maybe it's two words. There's a hyphen. I'm not sure There's how the numbers hyphen. work. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a dumb word used by wonks nobody understands. Medicare is a word everybody understands. And most people who have Medicare like it. So saying you should have access to Medicare, no matter what age you are, I think it's a pretty good proposal. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm getting to. When I'm, when I, I don't really, I don't really, you know, I, I do think Nancy Pelosi kept her caucus together. Uh, there was There was no drift in support for Ryan's bill. Uh, I don't really hold them. I don't really feel there's a huge need to hold them to accounts for what came before. But right now, there's an opportunity now to fill the vacuum. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have, and they don't have a lot of power. They can't, you know, they can't force legislation into the public sphere. But they can communicate ideas. Right, and They're there are problems with Obamacare. Yeah, right? yeah. Like there, are, they, they, like there are a bunch of states where, like, collectively, millions of people are getting kind of shitty insurance through Obamacare. Who would like to have better insurance? And with Donald Trump, sort of like trying to make the case that it's the Democrats also. See, everyone, everyone in Donald Trump's world screwed this up. He was not to blame, even though he he bailed on this effort after 17 days. Someone joked that it takes longer than 17 days to close on a condo. This guy couldn't leave and stick it out through the weekend to try to make something work. Um, but with him attempting to blame Democrats for this bill's defeat, this would have been an obvious opportunity for Democrats to fill that space with something, to say, okay, well, if you want to negotiate, here's here's where we stand on this. Just so the world knows there's a place where Democrats stand on this that they yeah. can evaluate. And and Bernie introducing, you know, a Medicare for all plan, you know, I think it shows a shift in because since nobody else in the Democratic Party is saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on, let's do something different." It shows a shift in the way the Democratic Party is thinking about doing its sort of policy negotiation. Remember during the primary, Hillary Clinton said famously, "That will never ever happen." with regards to Medicare for all. And she had this very carefully tailored, you know, 30,000 point plan for how she was going to make Obamacare better, which was great. It was fine. It would have made Obamacare better. But nobody reads 30,000 point plans. And if you come to the table with here's the perfect way that we can wonkily, you know, re-engineer this, this, this program, you often don't end up getting all 30,000 points. Yeah. If you come with a very simple, straightforward proposal that is basically a principle that everybody should get government-backed health care if they want it, then you can negotiate from there and maybe you end up with a 30,000 point plan. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. in the aftermath of the Republican bill's defeat, there is more press attention on the idea of Medicare for all. And it got more co-sponsors more rapidly than it has in previous Congresses. Another funny thing that's happening is there's the tantalizing possibility that now that Obamacare has like survived so many uh, near assassinations – Republican states will sign on to the, the bill's Medicaid expansion. And, and for instance, in Kansas, that's actually happening. Which will increase, right which only increase the amount of number of actors out there in the world who want to see the bill just improved. Right. I, it, it will further entrench the yeah. law. My argument is, at this point is that Donald Trump and Republicans, I know there are probably not enough Republicans to go along with this. But to me, the obvious way out of this is for Republicans to co-op what the Democrats want to do, which is fix Obamacare. I think that 
they get to take credit for all the outcomes going forward because they're the ones in charge. Insurance continues to drop. They get to high-five each other over it. Cost curve continues to bend down. They get to continue to high-five over it. They fix these things. They get a more uh, healthy and productive workforce. Uh, They get perhaps more entrepreneurship because people will be freed from job lock. They'll be able to start their own businesses. There's a wages and jobs aspect to this that they can actually – Take a hand at. Yeah, there's no they tax cuts in it, this. Yeah. They can call it. I know it really screws up the whole, like, let's give tax cuts to rich people. They'll have to figure out some of the way to do that. If only they're clever and creative. But to my mind, you call it Trump care. Tell your constituents you've repealed and replaced it and just move on for this because every idea they have collapses as soon as it sees the light of day. Well, now they may yet bring this bill back. Of course they might. And That's what they said it. this week. Yeah, and it's a, and it, I, don't see, I don't see what in a week's time are going to change the basic reality of the policy or the politics. It also won't – I mean there's, there's another chamber of – of Congress, known as the Senate. Yeah, they haven't even that, gotten that, there. That is wonk alert. Yeah, that is not not terribly enthusiastic about this bill as it stands. So, yeah. uh, they 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 have a really really long road ahead. And you of them know, if House House Republicans, thing. they they're not super duper keen on constantly passing bills that stand. Little to no chance of passing the Senate because it just creates a, an ad for you to be primaried on, right. or yeah, or, you it's know. a complete waste of time for them. So. Uh, I, you know, I think w- one thing that's interesting, though, on, on this, though, is that the Republicans for a long time have been campaigning, you know, sort of by by accepting the basic premise that people should have access to better health care. The Freedom Caucus and Paul Ryan are ideologues who don't actually believe that. And so there's been this sort of tension between talking about improving health outcomes for people and actually trying to take health care away. And so they, they do need to actually shift their own philosophical focus, but they don't need to change their rhetorical emphasis to do what you're talking about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. All right. Well, uh, we that's health care. I guess, I guess they could bring this back. Uh, they really, really, really should not. But hopefully everybody listening to this podcast stays nice and healthy and doesn't need to use their health insurance for the next week. Best of luck to all of you. Yeah, best of luck to all of you. We have a very nice show, so please stick around. We are going to come right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
And we're back. So uh, this week, Donald Trump has declared that the war on coal is over. This is a comment he made in a press conference when he announced his latest executive order. The sort of headline that accrued to the story was noting that uh, Trump's executive order would roll back uh, many of the Obama administration's uh, policies on climate change and clean energy. But one of the things Trump was very quick to emphasize was the fact that he had made a promise during his campaign to restore the livelihoods of working class and middle class uh, people in coal country, uh, bring those jobs back. And so this is his first big foray into attempting to keep that promise. But it begs the question, and I know I'm using that phrase begs the question wrong. It raises the question. Is this promise an empty one? Can it be fulfilled? Joining us to talk about that, we have Arthur Delaney. Yo. Hi, Arthur. And we're very, very happy to have uh, Huffington Post uh, editor Paige Lavender with us today. Paige, you are from West Virginia. Yes. And you know this culture inside and out. So I'm very glad to have you here today. So right off the bat, I'll just point out that um, as as we reported, um, the White House executive orders, they're touting these sort of potential gains in coal production. But according to Robert Murray, who I know is is your one of your your best friends, um, uh, he 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 says that Trump needs to adjust his expectations on how much coal can come back. What is the actual state of of the coal mining industry right now in West Virginia? Well, it's it's funny that you bring bring up the war on coal because the war on coal was really like a marketing thing. You know, Obama had this war on coal and and Dave Jameson, who reports here, actually did a story a couple of years ago about how that messaging, uh, people in the coal industry found that me- messaging wasn't really resonating with people very well. So they kind of like tapered off from using it, but the phrase really stuck. Uh, but when you look at an actual war on coal, you could argue that natural resources have a natural, an actual war on coal, like coal's going to run out eventually. Um, so, and, and and it's not just that, but also the fact that you know, coal mining jobs aren't the same that they were decades ago. We have machinery now that does a lot of the work that replaces the jobs, you know, that coal miners used to fulfill. Right, yeah. So there are so many factors that feed into this so-called war on coal uh, that for Trump to say he can just roll back a few regulations and boom, the jobs are back. That's not necessarily a promise that can be kept. Well, to, but so – Coal is like 30% of American energy, down from 50 in recent years. Right. And this is largely because other forms of energy, like natural gas, have gotten a lot cheaper. We've had the fracking boom, so there's a, a much greater supply of cheaper energy. These are economic reasons for coal's slump. But there, if there were a war on coal, it would have been in Obama's clean power plan, uh, EPA regulations that you know were hostile to coal power. Yeah. And that's what Trump is undoing, though it you know it'll it's unclear how swiftly the agency can actually rip out these things that are uh, pretty complicated and took a long time to put together. Yeah, the a lot of some of the things that that, that Donald Trump wants to undo is, is uh, the Obama air regulation was 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 meant to attack carbon emissions and reduce them for a variety of reasons, mainly. It was pursuant to his overall goal of reducing uh, anthropogenic climate change. He's part of the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, there's been an overall war in the Trump administration on EPA efforts to do things like that. 
Um, but he does point out that these he insists that these regulations have an impact on jobs in the coal mining industry. And perhaps um, just by the very nature of encouraging clean energy sectors to ramp up, uh, there's a sort of picking winners and losers thing. Everyone, of course, picks their own winners and losers. Donald Trump seems to want to pick uh, Appalachian coal miners as winners and losers. Um, but Paige, what, how, do, how does all of this uh, – what is the the self perception of people in mining country? How do they perceive this industry right now, and how do they react to uh, a president? We can say at least a president a president is taking these people seriously. I suppose at least his rhetoric seems to take them seriously. We've had we've had in the past, you know, big stories out of West Virginia uh, that all sort of point to the fact that they've people in these regions have been largely forgotten. Here we have a president remembering them, bringing them up at an executive order presser. Right. And I mean, I think that, first of all, I should say that I've never worked in the mining industry. So a lot of this is observational, what I'm sharing with you. Uh, But I do think that a lot of people, people generally, not just miners in West Virginia, did feel very ignored during the Obama administration. I mean, Obama had no support there. (laughs) So he rarely went there. In fact, one of the few times that he did go there was after the Upper Big Branch mining disaster when uh, 29 miners were killed and he went to uh, the memorial service. But he didn't really frequent it as a place. And Trump has made stops there. You know, he sat down with people from West Virginia um, and talked to them about what it is they want and how it is he can help them. So I do think that they feel a little more appreciated in a Trump administration. And I think part of that, too, uh, you know, the sort of ignoring by Obama and the attention they're getting from Trump definitely plays into how they view their jobs. I mean, people in West Virginia view coal mining jobs as absolutely essential. And a lot of that, I think, is short term thinking. You know, a lot of people, even guys I went to school with, uh, you know, graduate high school and start working in the mines. That's a totally normal thing to do. Uh, and it's a great way to make money if you can hang on to your job. I also have, you know, many friends who've been laid off time and time again because it's not so much as steady work anymore um, because of things like the regulations and just the fluctuating industry. But uh, but for people who can get a job there, it is a good way to make a living. And I'm sure it is a short-term thought. You know, it's hard to give up a job where you're making sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year and providing for your family. I mean, in West Virginia, that's good money. And so it's hard to give that up and think, you know, this this industry is not going to last forever. I need to go back to college and get a degree and do something right. else. That's not really a feasible option for a lot of people. So just because the New York Times and Bloomberg are like, look, these coal jobs won't come back anyway, doesn't mean people in West Virginia and other coal mining states aren't thrilled that the president is paying them special attention. Right, exactly. They they think it's great. And actually, even if you look on a state level, uh, there was a bill proposed in West Virginia to uh, eliminate um, – like the state, like there are state and federal people who regulate coal mines, who who go in and inspect things and make sure everything's in working order. And there was a bill in West Virginia to uh, scale back the state level regulators and and let. MSHA handle everything, basically. And I know a lot of coal miners. I know coal miners who know people who died in Upper Big Branch who praised that legislation, who thought that a lot of what the state regulators were doing was duplicative and, like, they should just let the federal government handle it. And so I feel like places like Bloomberg and The New York Times report these things and they think, you know, we know what's best for you guys. But people who are living in coal country and working in this industry, I think, have a very, very different point of view about what's best for them and, and, and you know— I, you know, obviously, I have feelings about it one way or the other. Uh, but, you know, I think what we need to aim for ultimately is just to do what is the safest for the most amount of people. The uh, the coal 
policy of the Trump administration is of a piece with his broader campaign push to do things for blue-collar workers. And in manufacturing, he went against conventional wisdom, which is that all manufacturing jobs are doomed because of automation. He said, actually, I can do stuff with uh, trade policy and just bullying companies to make them reconsider shipping jobs to Mexico. And it worked. But I wonder if the, that's really possible here. Like, it, it seems like there will be some additional investment in mining, but that with coal executives themselves saying, eh, we're going to have a robot do that work now, it, it might not be as uh, strong a policy as the manufacturing and trade stuff. Yeah, I think you made a great point. Like, I think we're going to maybe see some short-term benefits here. You might see some jobs come back, and I'm sure I'll see a lot more people in my Facebook feed saying, oh, you know, got a job again, like I'm employed again, because I see that all the time. The conversation's about, you know, laid off one more time, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'm sure that there will be a lot of people happy in the short term, but you're right. Like you cited before, Robert Murray himself has said that Trump needed to sort of chill out a little bit on his on his expectations. Uh, so I think when people in the industry are saying that kind of thing, you know, it, it's that's a pretty big signal that Trump should probably reassess how he's approaching this. One of the things that's interesting about this intense focus on coal is that Trump's executive order and his overall energy policy is not necessarily completely laser focused on reviving the coal industry. In this executive order, there are uh, there are benefits that that will accrue to both the oil industry and the natural gas industry. And one of the things we've seen as 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 the oil industry has held their market share and as natural gas has boomed is we've seen old coal-fired facilities come offline and replaced by natural gas facilities, which would tend to indicate to me that the long-term prognosis as coal uh, in, 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 in external industries besides just digging it out of the ground – is on the decline and that the actual market value of this activity is going to, you know, tend to continue to dip down. Is there any do you think that people worry about that? Do they do they understand that there's that there's market forces working against them even as this executive order seems to benefit them? I think that people probably know that. But like I said, mostly I think for most people it's about putting food on the table every night. And when you can go to work at a job that pays you $60,000 a year in West Virginia, you know, that's what you're thinking of in that moment. It's not this in the long term, you know, this industry is going to be, you know, replaced or, or slowly taken over about like, you know, we're going to switch out coal for natural gas. I don't think that's so much a concern. I think I really think it's a lot of short term. That's a good point. I think one of the biggest things that income inequality does is it completely forces people to think entirely in terms of short term outcomes because those become life or death. It's got to be refreshing to hear people in Washington say, uh, here's your job back rather than go to school. Well, I and mean, like get training. I mean, which but, has been the, uh, the democratic message for people with low levels of education for twenty years. And there is, I think, a little bit of sort of condescension behind it because I think it's, I think it's a little bit of the piece of what you're just saying about big media companies that report on these stories that don't get the whole, don't get the whole story. But I mean, at the same time, we're still talking about a natural resource that the industry is depleting and will eventually run out of. So at some point, in order to revive towns that were once Big big boom towns. There has to be some kind of economic diversification. You know, I I feel I feel sometimes that it would be more meaningful for President Trump to move a big government facility 
to West Virginia, where you would have a little bit more diversity in the economy and businesses would spread up to support something like a big research facility or 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 or, or, or I, I don't know. Uh, you, you can move. Why isn't the Department of Interior in Appalachia? It could just as well be there as it is in Washington, D.C. Right. And that's happened in the past. I think Robert Byrd did a lot of that, bringing stuff to West Virginia. People, that's called pork, <laughs> yo. It's called yeah. pork, yeah. Well, and, you know. and people really embrace that kind of thing. But I, I think, too – there is a there is a layer of we need to bring in you know more diversification in industry in West Virginia, but in in a small it's a very small factor, but it's a factor that exists. I think there's a proud element too. I mean, both of my grandfathers were coal miners, and I have a lot of friends who are miners whose daddies were miners, whose daddies were miners. You know, like that's just the way it goes. And um, actually, I, I know people. The last conversation I had with with one of my friends who died at Upper Big Branch, he was telling me how much he loved his job mining coal. Um, that was like one thing that really stands out in my mind is like he. He seemed passionate about that line of work. And so I do think we need to diversify the industries there in West Virginia and elsewhere in coal country. Uh, but I think a lot of it, too, is just there's a pride factor that people are going to have to eventually move past. There was an official uh, West Virginia state or local official who said, you know, tourism is something we should look to. And I think people should visit West Virginia. And it's got these mountains, so it'll be a good place to go when, because we've undone our clean power regulations, the world is dying of climate change and the sea levels rise. So we can go to higher ground. Thanks, West Virginia. Everyone just follow me. I will lead the way. If you're listening to this podcast and you want some West Virginia recs, I'm at Paige Lab on Twitter. Yes. (laughs) I'm happy to give you some recs. For West Virginia recs. Well, um, (laughs) thanks for coming out. You know, I feel like it's important that we talk about people in Appalachia because uh, right now we're talking about the sons and grandsons of – and granddaughters and daughters – of, of people who dug wealth out of the ground. And that wealth accrued to all of us. We sit in a big office today. We're in a podcast studio today. It's powered by energy. You know, we wouldn't be here today without those efforts. And people in Appalachia are almost always the last to receive any kind of benefit. They were the last to receive uh, rural electrification. They were, they're going to be probably last to receive IT broadband type services. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't, make a bunch of policy choices that would force them to be the last to receive the benefits of better economic diversity. It's good to put people back to work in the short term, but don't leave the generation of people who built this country out in the cold again when you have a chance to do something different. All right, Paige, Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as usual by... I'm, I'm Jason Lincolns. I was oh, here just a minute ago. Still here. Still still around. And uh, we have a, a very special new guest making his, uh, his debut on So That Happened. He's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, Michael Kazin. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So... You essentially wrote uh, – uh, your newest book is, is essentially about uh, the, the, the pacifist movement, the war resistor movement during World War I. And I'm, I'm fascinated by World War I because it's this really big deal in European cultural memory. But in the United States, World War II is like the big, the big war for Americans. But at the time, World War I was this huge, huge thing in the United States. What, what made you want to write about it at, at this particular moment in time? Well, partly I think um, I was involved in the movement against the Vietnam War long ago when I was in college, very involved in it. And I wondered 
you know, World War I was, I think, a very bad war, a war the United States should not have fought, a war that should not have happened at all. And a lot of Americans opposed it, but I didn't really understand uh, why they opposed it and how large this movement was. So I like to write about social movements. Sometimes people say I write about social movements that fail. I write about I wrote a biography of William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times, and he failed too. But I think sometimes um, – uh, movements and individuals in history uh, who failed are as interesting as those who succeeded. And I wanted to understand why the movement grew as much as it did, but also why it failed. Now, you've described this this particular movement that arrayed itself around the turn of the century against World War I as, as one of the largest of its kind and a story that really had not been told by anyone. What was it that caused this this movement to kind of like briefly fall into the memory hall? Well, I think the war itself has fallen to the memory hole. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, in the book that uh, when I ask my students on November 11th uh, every year at Georgetown, why do we celebrate Veterans Day, November 11th? What is it about November 11th? And hardly any of them know it. And these are smart students, you know, went to good high schools, did really well in high school. They're taking history classes. I think World War One is a— It's Armistice Day, folks. That's why. Yes, yeah, Armistice World Day. War That's when World War I ended. Ding, ding, yes. Um, you know, I think— um, as Zach was saying, it's it's uh, the war which really began the 20th century in, in a sense. Uh, without World War I, there's no World War II. Without World War I, there's no Bolshevik Revolution. There's no Nazism. Uh, there's no fascism in Europe. Um, and there's probably no massive military national security state in this country either. Um, so the people opposed World War I in this country tried to stop all that from happening. Not Bolshevism necessarily, but a national security state, a militarized state. Uh, they failed to do it. Um, but they had a lot of Americans on their side, and it really was just the, I think, uh, influence of Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, who had been in favor of the peace movement in many ways, in favor of neutrality, until he wasn't in favor of it anymore in 1917. And 100 years ago, uh, next month, he took the U.S. into war. So Woodrow Wilson, I mean, how do you see his legacy on relating to, to the war? I mean, his, his defenders see him as sort of this beacon of internationalism, trying to bring sort of a humanitarian role for the United States in, in international affairs. Uh, what, what, what is his legacy both uh, in terms of domestic policy and handling wars and it, for you know, the Ameri America's place in the international scene? He's a complicated figure. On the one hand, we talk about Wilsonian democracy, Wilsonian internationalism, really from Wilson on – uh, through Barack Obama, I think, uh, most uh, every president pretty much has believed that the United States uh, is an exceptional nation, has a positive moral role to, 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 to serve in the, in the world. And when America goes overseas with arms in hand, when Americans go overseas with arms in hand, they do it with only benevolent uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, interests, uh, benevolent motives. On the other hand, clearly that has not always been true. In many ways, it has been true only, in, one could argue, in World War II uh, and perhaps the Korean War. And so uh, he's both a, a incredibly hopeful figure, optimistic figure, wanting Americans to do the right thing, and yet is, an, is uh, someone who initiated a process by which Americans end up doing the wrong thing uh, very often. So I see him as a kind of a, a powerful, naive figure uh, in a sense. But also we have to remember he was progressive he, um, on, on every issue but race, and that's an important mm -hmm. one, of course. He was a segregationist. But um, he did uh, help labor unions organize. He did support um, uh, social workers like Jane Addams who wanted to um, eliminate poverty as much as possible. He ended up supporting women's suffrage uh, rather late. So 
In that sense, he also wanted to make the world more democratic with a small d. Now, what happens to these, uh, this pacifist movement, to the, the anti-war resistance movement under, under Wilson? What happens to it after the war? You mean? Or during the war and after. Yeah. Well, when war is declared, uh, April 6, 1917, uh, the movement feels it can keep on going and keep posing the war. But very quickly, Wilson and Congress, which supported him in this, says, mm-mm, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, they passed the Espionage Act of 1917, which in effect made it illegal to oppose the war. Uh, the definition of espionage at the time was quite broad, as in many ways is today. Of course, Edward Snowden's been uh, – will be con- will be indicted under that law if he ever gets back to the United States. Um, and so figures like Eugene Debs, the great American socialist, uh, Emma Goldman, the great uh, anarchist, and a whole range of anti-war figures uh, who were not radicals uh, are prosecuted under this act. And later on, amendments to the act passed in 1918, which are even more draconian than the original Espionage Act. So really this is – I think because these laws were passed because the movement was so popular, because the movement against the war was so uh, influential in many ways, that Wilson and his supporters believed that you had to squelch this uh, anti-war feeling or it could endanger mobilization for the war, endanger the draft. Uh, The draft was instituted in 1917 when at the same time the Espionage Act was passed, the first draft since the Civil War. And it was popular – uh, among a lot of people who wanted to show you know, their gusto for, for going to war. But a lot of people also didn't like it. Actually, a higher percentage of Americans resisted the draft in World War I than in the Vietnam War. When hmm. we think about, oh, draft resistance, this is so right. popular in Vietnam. Uh, and that fact is not, not very well known. Was, was this idea represented by the, the Espionage Act something new in, in, in American history or had there been precedents for this type of – During you know? the uh, almost war against France uh, between 1798 and 1800, John Adams, the second president uh, and his Federalist Congress had passed a law that was somewhat similar to this, uh, the Sedition Acts they were called. Um, but it was very unpopular um, at the time and – the war never happened. The uh, U.S. didn't go to war against France. Uh, and then Jefferson wins election in 1800 uh, in part because the sedition acts that Adams had, had signed were so unpopular. Uh, different in World War World War I um, because the war was – once it was declared, it was I think you know, relatively popular. Um, and uh, also um, the movement um, – has to fight very hard to make itself heard against these laws. You said that um – that at first Wilson was sort of generically supportive of this movement. How did it? How and why did this calculus change? Um, long answer. I'll try to do it short. <laughs> first of all, um, most Americans clearly were opposed to the war uh, when it started. Uh, just seemed like these European empires always fighting each other. Always uh, these aristocrats, uh, many of whom were related to each other. Um, in different countries, um, we don't have any, any any reason to be part of that. But uh, crazy idea, yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, but then U.S. business gets involved in the war because it was not uh, against international law for neutral nations to trade with belligerents, and right. so um, Britain and France really are able to keep going because of American loans and because of uh, American materiel, which 
gets churned out of American factories in 1915 and 1916. Um, and the Germans, um, the only weapon they really have to counter the superiority of the, of the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy on the Atlantic, are uh, well, U-boats, submarines, uh, which are a new weapon which scared a lot of people, understandably so, because they can kill you and you don't even see the torpedo coming, um, unlike traditional kind of naval warfare. Uh, and this uh, sets up a tension with um, with American shipping. Uh, also, Americans traveling on British ships uh, get killed, uh, uh, not in large numbers, but headline, headline numbers. Sure. Uh, and eventually, um, Wilson decides that uh, in order to protect the self-interest of American ships on the Atlantic and also in order to make a better world, as he saw it, the U.S. had to get involved in the war. He said – the, the other, these other nations, the Germans and the, and the French and the British, won't listen to um, the uh, better angels of, uh, of our nature unless we help to win the war. This movement, um, aside from being against war, they seem to also be against just the generic establishment of some kind of security state, some kind of permanent war-making state. And obviously the Espionage Act sort of uh, – it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when you think about – the direct line from what was happening then to what we have now, Patriot Act, permanent military industrial complex. How how well were they at predicting the future? Uh, did they have a good line of what could possibly happen and how right were they when they when they uh, when, when they discussed what could possibly happen in America? How accurate were they? It's a great question. I think they're pretty accurate, actually. Uh, the FBI takes on new powers. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, as a young man, is is involved in that during the war, and then becomes head of the FBI in, in the early 1920s. Uh, you have military intelligence, which has new powers uh, uh, during the war as well. You have American propaganda uh, run by the government for the first time. Uh, a group called the Committee on Public Information sells the war effort. All this this apparatus. Uh, is set in place by the war. The draft doesn't continue, uh, however. Uh, there is a recoil from uh, some of this in the 1920s and, and 1930s because so many Americans thought it had been a mistake to go into the war after the war ends. Uh, but then it's picked up again in World War II. And uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who uh, a great progressive that uh, many people listening to this uh, certainly um, uh, think was a, was a great president, as I, as I do in many ways. Uh, Zach over here has a T-shirt, an FDR T-shirt. You can't, you can't see it, but it's a lovely T-shirt. Um, it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. But at uh, the same time, he had been assistant secretary of the Navy under Wilson. He believed very strongly that the state should be – American state should be strong – uh, militarily and diplomatically uh, and uh, police the uh, uh, the activities of Americans to a certain degree as well. Um, and, that's, and that's continued. And I think uh, the great um, uh, journalist and intellectual Randolph Bourne uh, wrote an essay during World War I uh, in which he used the famous – now famous line, war is the health of the state. War is the health of the state. And I think that's indisputable. Um, people oppose the war during the war. The anti-war coalition that I write about in War Against War uh, said that they were not in favor of Germany winning the war. They were against what they call the Prussianization of America. <laughs> uh, and Prussia, which was the most powerful state within Germany, um, was a militaristic society. And they were opposed – they thought that would happen. We, we haven't gone that far certainly. But we take for granted a – uh, power of the national security state, the power of the military in our lives and in our government uh, that Americans before World War I 
would have thought was very strange and and quite alien to what they thought the country stood for. Well, what's the old saying? The state is uh, the only the only the only organization that has a monopoly on the authority to use violence is the state. That's what Max Weber said. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure he said it better than me. Um, well, well, he's he German. said in German. So <laughs> sure, sure. Translations put not bad. Right. Sure. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Max Weber, but uh, knowing that, knowing that, knowing that potentially some of these things ramped up uh, because there was an effective peace movement that threatened that monopoly. What lessons can you? What what lessons have we learned about the most effective way to oppose that monopoly and uh, question whether we belong in stupid wars? And question whether we belong having the security state. Are there things that we can know now based on that experience? Well, first of all, it's hard to organize an anti-war movement uh, once the war begins. You have to do it, of course. Uh, one of the advantages they had was they were organizing this movement before the U.S. got into the war. Right, yeah. uh, so it was larger. But as you saw with the Iraq War uh, in 2003, they tried to organize a movement right before uh, uh, George W. Bush took us into that war based on false uh, information, of course, about WMDs. But it was tough. Once the war began, it was it was very difficult to keep, keep that going. Um, I think anti-war movements uh, have to have a vision of a better world and have to have a realistic vision of a better world and how to get there without war. Uh, and it's tough when you have this large military structure and and presidents sort of like to use it, you know, uh, whenever whenever they can. And there are real dangers out there, like ISIS, which you do want to oppose. Uh, so military, you can't be a complete pacifist, I don't think. And most of the people I wrote about actually were not complete pacifists, uh, as we understand the term today. They were opposed to dumb wars, uh, as Obama put it, not all wars. Trump's OMB director, Mick Mulvaney, has described Trump's budget as a hard power budget. Yeah, yeah. And certainly we're going to spend a lot more money on the military and less money on uh, domestic uh, programs uh, under Trump. Well, let's talk a little bit about Trump because one of my favorite books ever, not just by you, is your biography of William Jennings Bryan. When this came out about eight years ago, it was considered a, a major sort of reassessment of Bryan's legacy. He was sort of looked at as this kind of curious buffoon, I think, prior to your book. And then a afterwards, people thought of him as a major intellectual figure in, in the development of the Democratic Party. Um, but, but he's a populist leader, late 19th century. Obviously, we're in the middle of some kind of populist thing that's happening in the United States right now. Do you see any interesting lessons or parallels from the turn of the last century and, and the moment we find ourselves in today? Well, thanks a lot for that that plug. A godly hero, <laughs> the life of William James Bryan. For it's really great. Right. Books. Yeah. <laughs> um, available real cheap on Amazon uh, and other places. Well, one of the arguments that the peace coalition I wrote about in War Against War made against going to war was this war only benefits the rich. It only benefits corporations which make materials for war. That was too simplistic. It was too economistic, if you will. But, you know, certainly that's true. Certainly um, big defense contractors have done very well since 9-11. Um, here in Washington, there's, I don't know, I saw some figure, 100,000 jobs were created after 9-11 just for national security. Uh, I, I always liken the sort of like Tyson's satellite hub of like SAIC and Northrop Grumman to uh, to like DC's version of Vegas where the house always wins. <laughs> you know, look, the casinos are there. You see them. They're getting bigger every day. Except if you work for them, you don't lose money. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not like people go to Vegas, Vegas as customers. But, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the um, uh, tropes, popular tropes, uh, uh, images of speech that 
Trump uses um, Steve Bannon, probably taught him in many ways, uh, which is people on the left and the right have used, uh, is the idea that the big corporations, the economic elite, the globalist elite, if you will, is the enemy of the ordinary people. And, and the anti-war movement used that, used that in, uh, in World War I as well, even though it was less of a globalist elite as, as opposed to an Anglo-American one at the time that they were opposing. You know, I think it's very powerful. I think that populist language uh, is used by both the left and the right. Bernie Sanders, as we know, talked in some ways similar to the ways that uh, Donald Trump talked during the campaign, even though, of course, he uh, he had a very different program that he wanted to institute. Um, and I think it's – I can't imagine a popular movement in America on the right or the left these days certainly not using populist language to some degree. Mm-hmm. The difference, of course, is who the people are who the elite are, those definitions, and what you do with those definitions. That makes all the difference. And you wrote an article in, uh, I believe, Foreign Affairs magazine, yeah. uh, just around the, the, the election time, talking about different types of populism. You, you sort of made two different distinctions. Can you, can you lay those out for us here? Yeah. I mean, very broadly, I think there's two different kinds of uh, populism in, in American history. One is sort of the Bernie Sanders variety, the left-wing variety, you might say, where you try not to talk about differences within the people. Uh, you try to direct all your fire at the top of society, economic elites, political elites, which help along those elites, excuse me, cultural elites perhaps as well. Um, and the other kind, which I think Trump um, represents, which has been just as powerful and just as popular, in some ways more, more, more popular and powerful, at least up until uh, recent years, is um, – which you might call ethno-racial populism, where you see the broad middle of the population, the hardworking middle class, uh, we call them now, uh, being preyed on by both elites at the top and um, uh, immoral poor people at the bottom, uh, recent immigrants uh, from different countries, Chinese in the 19th century, uh, Muslim immigrants and Mexican immigrants today, for example, uh, African-Americans uh, certainly at, at certain points too. So, I mean, that's just as powerful a, a populism because a lot of white working class and middle class Americans uh, traditionally uh, really are suspicious of people below them who are of different race, different religion uh, sometimes. Irish Catholic immigrants played that, that role back in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, so you have a, a more progressive, more tolerant populism, if you will, battling against uh, a more racially, ethnically uh, exclusive populism. And uh, uh, it can be a very close fight. Well, Michael Kaysen, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to do it. Thanks. The book's called War Against War. It's great and you should read it. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by professor and author Michael Kazin, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Paige Lavender. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 